Welcome to Bodies in the Post, where I speak to art makers, product creators, scientists and revolution makers who help us rethink what it is to be human in these post-human times. Here, we get to know the humans behind the creations and their inner worlds that form the basis of what drives them. I'm your host, Lydia Kay, a researcher in this field. Hello. Please excuse my voice this week. I'm losing it. I'm also not in my usual recording room as it's under construction. It's not mine, but I do use it, so it's still quite inconvenient. So instead, I'm in my cosy but not soundproof living room. But I'm here to introduce my guest this week, who is Dr. Joe Zayner, who is a former NASA scientist, now biohacker and artist. Biohacking, for those who don't know, is DIY or do-it-yourself, human augmentation, human enhancement, body modification aimed at improving performance, health, well-being, overall appearance. So it can be seen as quite transhuman in its aims. After leaving the academic science world, Joe became passionate about making science accessible and believes that everyone should have access to advancing biotechnologies. So Joe created their own company, Odin, which sells DIY CRISPR kits or gene editing kits to anyone who wants to self-experiment. So CRISPR is a DNA editing technology which has the capacity to cure all sorts of diseases, disabilities and bodily disorders. It's a really powerful scientific tool. Within the academic science community, biohacking is condemned as dangerous since it's done outside of the lab and doesn't operate under the same health and safety regulations. Because of this, Joe has dealt with lots of government and FDA pushback. Here we talk about the constraints of science and how it's ultimately tied to capitalism and the profiting of pharmaceutical companies. In 2019, Joe featured on the Netflix documentary titled Unnatural Selection, a series about genetic engineering and particularly CRISPR. It explores the ethics of these new technologies in particular. In this documentary, Joe was filmed injecting themselves with CRISPR at a conference, which people in the audience filmed, which led to the incident going viral. We talk about this video and how Joe feels about the controversial celebrity status it brought them. We also talk about how Joe officially came out as transgender through their newsletter, which is called Amateur Gods, which is an apt name for gene editing biohackers, since many believe they are playing God by changing the substance of life itself. In this episode, Joe discusses the crossover of worlds between biohacking and practices of gender transitioning and explains how they biohacked a pair of boobs for themselves, which lasted only about 24 hours, but still pretty impressive. We also talked about becoming trans species, which is something Joe has experimented with by injecting fluorescent jellyfish DNA into their body to become the first ever human jellyfish hybrid. Joe has also worked with trans species artist Agnes Questionmark, who is another amazing artist who you'll be hearing from in an upcoming episode this season. I found this conversation with Joe absolutely fascinating. I hope you enjoy it too. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for coming to speak with me, Dr. Joe Zena. It's such a pleasure to have you here on Bodies in the Post. I'm really excited to ask you questions about what you're doing in the science world, but also get to know you and your values and like things about you as a person and, and as a human. That's kind of what I'm really interested in because I think you're a really intriguing character. You come across or you're described often in the media as quite a controversial figure. We do think yeah, that's fair. Reasonable, I think. Well, I mean, I don't think I'm controversial, but in the context of society and culture, probably, yeah. I don't set out to be controversial. I set out to express myself and do things, but those things just end up being controversial sometimes. Yeah. Well, you've got this really incredible background. You've got a PhD in molecular biophysics. You're a former NASA scientist where you were mm -hmm. working on creating a bacteria to help astronauts survive on Mars. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you've got this incredible scientific foundation, but you've, you've sort of moved away from let's say like academic and institutional science in order to make it more accessible and democratic. And you have your own company, Odin, where you sell DIY gene editing kits. Yeah. And your mission, from what I can gather, is about making science and this equipment available to anyone. So it's about being democratic and taking science outside of the lab, outside of universities. And you've got this kind of endeavor, which is very, it feels like you're on a mission to create this democratic environment for people. Yeah, well, you know, um, I think uh, science and a lot of things are not accessible to a lot of people, not because they can't be, because society places a certain value on people having that knowledge, which is kind of messed up and kind of unfortunate. The problem is, is that science is something that's so valuable to all of us that it not being available for people to do just seems kind of silly to me. It seems like one of those things that sometime in the future people are going to look back at and just be like, why was it ever that way? And there's so much gatekeeping in science preventing people from accessing these things. And I think that two things really drive me. And one is self-expression and, you know, getting out those things that are inside me. And the other is just giving people opportunities. You know, I think the runaway capitalism that we, a lot of us live in nowadays is starting to stratify classes really bad and it means there's less opportunities for people and any way possible that I can try to give opportunities and fight back against that class stratification and especially in science I think it's very powerful. Well it's interesting a lot of the stuff I read about specifically like post-human theory there's this kind of big positive endeavor which is like about equality and making things accessible for all. It talks a lot about unequal distribution of wealth and how we can tackle this but I started to get really frustrated kind of just going around and around with people publishing books that get stuck in academia and they also use a really convoluted language which you know I now read it a lot but it still takes me a while to kind of grasp it and that frustrates me I feel like they make it inaccessible yeah and a lot of what I look at is artists and we're going to get onto the point that you see yourself as an artist as well I was seeing these artists and creators and thinkers being the doing element of post-humanism and they're the people who are the active yeah. doing element rather than like let's talk about this and go around in circles for hours and hours. I feel like you're one of the people who's put yourself out there and saying, I'm going to just get on with this and do it rather than talk about it and make it accessible for everybody. Oh yeah, for sure. I think too many people are afraid to do things for fear of controversy, societal backlash, being different. There's shame. I think there's a lot of reasons that people are afraid to do things. Things that are completely possible, just that uh, I don't want to say it, it holds society back because different people 
might argue different things, but in a post-human world, it definitely holds back the post-human world. A lot of that I think is fear. And I think people like me are the ones who uh, set aside the fear and do the action, try to create mm. that post-human world. Do you still feel that fear? Oh yeah, of course. Uh-huh. And do you feel, you mentioned there like feelings of shame as well. Do you feel that around what you're doing at all? For sure. Yeah. I'm only human, you know, right now. <laughs> right now. <laughs> Watch this space. Well, I understand that feelings of fear and shame that aren't associated with risks to my health generally are things that just are just holding us back. And I'm not one of those people who's like, I try to be like fear free or anything like that. No, it's just you can recognize fear when it's holding you back versus when it's something that's good and healthy. At least I can. And same with shame, you know? And I mean, shame is something that transgender people know well, right? Trying to live in a cis-hetero binary society, you have to be very comfortable with feeling shame. And I think that leads to pushing boundaries in many areas, not just gender identity, sexual expression, things like that. You're right. I think it requires a bravery to live in a body where you feel like you're perceived as not fitting into a, a normative that's being forced upon the rest of the world. I think to break out of that and to firstly as well to talk about it and, you know, because a lot of trans people want to pass and they don't want to talk about it and that's completely their right. But I think also talking about it also in the context of what you do and biohacking and science, I think, again, it's about the education of it, isn't it? It's educating people on these topics and helping other people who maybe are feeling a lot of fear and a lot of shame being able to reach them yeah i mean it was really hard for me because i was i was already well known and famous before i came out as transgender so i can't hide that part of me i don't have that luxury of trying to erase the history of who i mm. was because it's just everywhere it's on fucking like netflix and all this stuff right yeah you can't you can't run from your past in any way yeah so it's really it's a lot more complicated i think for somebody like me but i think it's also good because people are forced to recognize that i am trans you know and so it uh, inspires people it affects societal change and things like that all positives all positives but it is brave and it must weigh you down sometimes because i'm sure you get a lot of shit online as i think anyone online does but anyone who's brave enough to have a voice on these issues gets a lot more shit than most yeah for sure well you know like i mean i think the problem is is once you have any sort of level of audience or notoriety there's always going to be individuals who don't agree with things about you yeah you know, I've experienced that for a long time and I'm kind of used to it, you know, because as you said, my work, people tend to view it as controversial. And so it's like nothing new to me. It's just kind of like part of the way the world works, which sucks, but it, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just like, is it easier in that way than, you know, is this hetero person? Sure, but I wouldn't yeah. have it any other way, you know? I think that that's it, isn't it? And I think you talk about that quite a lot. I've listened to quite a few of the podcasts you've been on and the Netflix series you mentioned. You are brave enough to really be yourself. And before your transition as well, I mean, you're, you're a big character. You know, obviously that's not to do with transitioning, but you have a voice, a loud voice. You're outspoken. You've got lots of views. You're intelligent. I feel like that is always going to get 
backlash. That's funny. I, you know, I don't, I kind of view myself personally as somebody who is not very outspoken, I guess. Really? I mean, not that I'm not, not that people can't see me that way. I think it's just that, I don't know. The real you is more introverted, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The real me is very introverted. Like, if people ever figured out who I really was, you know, the... But it's not like there's a different me that people see. It's just that one part of me is more exaggerated in the public eye because the public eye isn't spent, you know, at home cooking. It's spent doing public things. Mm. And you have to perform. Yeah, I tend to be good at performing, so... It's like with any lecturer and teacher, anyone who has to go in in front of a group of people, you have to put on a slightly different persona. And that's a kind of self-preservation thing as well. Yeah. Going back to the Netflix documentary Unnatural Selection, it was made, it was put onto Netflix in 2019. I'm, I'm sure it was made maybe a couple of years before then, but it's about pioneers in gene editing techniques and artificial intelligence. And, you know, there's scientists on there who talk about, they demonstrate taking the genes of a zebrafish, for example, which has the ability to regrow its fins or its heart. And they put it into a chicken fetus to make the fetus grow an extra leg. So they're kind of demonstrating the immense power of this particular tool known as CRISPR, this scientific tool, which I was wondering if you could define or explain CRISPR for us. Yeah. Uh, CRISPR is a modern gene editing tool. It stands for clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats, which doesn't have any significance or make any sense. So I wouldn't worry about that too much, but it just makes gene editing a lot easier than it was previously. And this is a tool that they're using within the documentary series. And this is the tool that is used within Odin, your company, as well. Sure. I mean, we use lots of different tools. CRISPR is just, you know, it's like in the repertoire of things that people do when they do gene editing. So generally, it's not like the only thing people do, because there's other things that might be better depending on the circumstances or whatever. But yeah, we do use it. Um, at my company and, you know, doing gene editing. The sort of stuff that you're selling on Odin at the moment is kind of stuff that you can genetically modify plants and use it for food groups and things like that. And I I know that you've had some issues with government regulations and the FDA approval, people trying to put limitations on what you're doing. And when I look through the kind of products that you sell, I'm always thinking this just probably is like the absolute tip of the iceberg, right, of what you, you, you obviously aren't allowed to sell probably other things that could modify bodies. Oh, sure. Yeah, I don't know if we would sell those other things either. But I think that um, the secret to starting a revolution is education. I think it's very underestimated. A lot of people don't think about it. Education and infrastructure. And it's obviously a very long play, but those are the things that are, I think, most important to me. And so a lot of the things that my company sells and that I try to do has to do with educating people on genetic engineering, DNA, and and it has to do with building infrastructure for our post-human future. Post-human is interesting because I I feel like there's got to be a word for like post-natural or I don't, you know, because it's like, it's not just human beings to me. It's also like Mm. plants and animals and The theory itself, again, going back to this convoluted philosophy of it, is about all of that. 
So post-human theory really brings in like the environment and nature and animals and care for others who are basically less advantaged. Often it's about kind of bringing in all the other voices and, and people who have previously been excluded. And they stand in opposition with uh, transhumanism, which is about the modifying of the body or enhancing of the body. And they disagree with each other. And actually, I think it's really interesting because the, the line between them is really fuzzy. And I think I see you as like sat on the line between them because your mission in many ways is very post-human in that it's very, like I said, democratic. It's about equality. It's about education for all, access for all. But mm -hmm. you, there is a focus on modifying the body, the human body, and how to enhance it in a grander scale, like how to be healthier or live longer or not age or change the way you look because you're not happy with it, for example. And those are things that would sit more within transhumanism, typically. For example, post-humanism, if it was going to get really critical, would say, you know, you're using animals to test on, for example, which wouldn't be seen as like very post-human. And also this idea of like modifying the body and enhancing the body could relate to ideas of human being at the top of like the hierarchy of species and how humans will destroy the planet and take what they want from yeah. animals, take what they want from nature in order to make themselves look better, live longer, help be healthier. There's this really complicated ethics, which is touched on in the series in a much deeper level than what we can do in this in this short time. But yeah, I, I wonder where you see yourself on that line, like the kind of slight paradox within that. Oh, I don't know. You know, I just generally am pretty iconoclastic and I generally don't define myself or associate with specific groups or anything like that. I kind of just follow my own path and what I feel is true to me and correct. I don't know. I don't. I, I definitely don't view humans as the only thing that matters. All organisms are important to me, but there's obviously sacrifices that everybody and everything has to make in order to alleviate suffering, in order to contribute to a healthy and good society and all these things, I think, in the modern world and the mm -hmm. way we exist socially and culturally. And so, yeah, I, I think I just take that into account. Do I enjoy working with animals or anything like that? No. You know, it's very, very heartbreaking. And I have a chicken tattoo in remembrance of all the chickens I worked with. Oh, in honor of them. In honor of their sacrifice. Yeah, because I view it as a sacrifice, you know? Yeah, it is a sacrifice. And we can't, I think it's hypocritical of many people to go into much detail with how animals are used in medicine because essentially so many of us would be dead. I take medication every day and I would be dead without it. So yeah. I can't, and many people can't sit here and say, you know, it shouldn't happen. So I think there is a sacrifice that has to be made. And, you know, this with gene editing and the potential for it, what I found enlightening, obviously, forgive me, because I'm not got, I haven't got a massive scientific brain, so I'm not kind of hot on the vocab. But mm -hmm. the potential for gene editing is massive, and what was I found really uncomfortable to watch and and distressing to watch on the Netflix series was, you know, they follow certain families who've got a child who's got a particular faulty gene that's come through the parent line that you know both the mother and the father has had this faulty gene, and together it's created a certain disability for the child, and one child they follow has got this gene that's making their eyesight degenerate and yeah they're losing their yeah. sight basically and he's only maybe seven and then another another man who's 24 who's got 
spinal muscular atrophy who is basically dying and they have the cure. This is the thing that I was finding so distressing is that there is a cure for these. I mean, now when the person who has spinal muscular atrophy is older and it's very difficult to treat him now, but as a kid, for children who are born with it now, they have these particular cures that can really help them if not completely take it away. And there's this obviously terrible situation with pharmaceutical companies where they make it insanely expensive and inaccessible for people. And that's the thing that is so distressing. And I think what you're doing with Odin is showing, is giving the ability for people to to a certain extent take things into their own hands but there's also going to be so much of this that is completely inaccessible for anyone for a long time right it can't be found on the internet this cure for spinal muscular atrophy for example i mean yes it can but uh it can well i mean you can't just buy it from somebody because it's illegal to sell but i forget which one they used in the movie maybe it was spinraza if i'm correct spinraza is just a nucleotide you could probably order it for fairly inexpensively you could order the drug you mean or yeah i mean i i think what people don't realize is in order to get post-human first we have to get post-capitalism <laughs> there's so many drugs that you can make if you understand how it works Obviously, there's not a whole large number of people in the world who could remake a gene therapy or something like that. So um, it's difficult, right? But I think that what is holding us back is knowledge. Once this knowledge becomes dispersed and accessible, a lot of these drug companies won't be able to charge that much money because, you know, people will just fly to the Dominican Republic and get injected with the same thing for a fraction of the cost. And is that something that someone could do right now, for example? Is that what some people are doing? Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't think there's anybody offering. Is it possible? Is this the sort of thing that you know about, but you're, but you're unable to talk about kind of thing? <laughs> like is this because i'm imagining i'm i'm assuming that like with anything there's a black market not that you would be in it but i'm sure there is one so you know if if i had a loved one who was ill for example i can see how desperate people would go above and beyond for sure they do uh-huh for sure there are people who do who get drugs administered in other countries mm. and i guess going back to odin that's kind of what it's doing is the tip of the iceberg in a sense it's showing people what could be possible and giving them some resources, but it's unable to provide any major health care because of the restrictions and limitations. Yeah, it's, it's held back by a lot of regulations. I don't think necessarily that's a bad thing necessarily because, you know, getting in the business of selling people drugs that could possibly hurt them or harm them, you know, it's a totally different business. And while it's powerful, I think it can help people and save lives. I don't think it's going to change society. And I think the thing that's required to change society, like I said, is education in everything. You know, it's like when I first came out as trans, I was always just like, I don't want to be a spokesperson for trans people or people to see me as trans. I just want to be me. I don't want to be any of those things. And um, it really didn't matter what I want, which was just like kind of the story of my life. <laughs> it just kind of happened anyway. But I've seen how many people that that's changed. People I know who spouted anti-trans rhetoric and stuff like that. And then through interacting with me or knowing that I was trans, it really changed them, right? 
because it was just the education, the experience, right? They probably didn't know any trans people or had bad experiences with trans people or a whole number of reasons. And I think that's just society in general. When you expose people to things and educate them on things, they're much more likely to make a decision that benefits everybody in humanity. A more informed decision, yeah. Is yeah. this, I sense it's something that you're struggling with at the moment, like on a personal level, the, the feeling like you have to be a spokesperson for trans, transness or... Um, I've kind of accepted that. There was a time when I was just... I was just avoiding anything of that nature, but I think that time's come and gone. I think generally um, it's just who I am now, who people see me as, you know, is a trans woman. You've mentioned before that transitioning, gender transitioning and the biohacking world cross over in such a huge way. Yeah, for sure. It's really cool. You know, transitioning has been one of the coolest things I've ever done because the person that I see myself in my head is aligning with who I am to the outside world. But not just that, just how differently you experience the world. It's just crazy. What do you mean by that? It has like a different gender or sex, right? Because it's like when you do pass, people treat you differently. Mm. And you start to see this dichotomy in the world that is like forced on people based on how they present themselves. And it's really interesting. And you just see so much, so much different. Can you explain a bit more about when you say you're treated differently or you see things differently? Can you give us some examples? Yeah, for sure. When I'm presenting as a woman, people are gentler, kinder. They do more things for me, less aggressive towards me. You know, people do so many things for me because they thought, you know, it's like gentlemanly thing to do. Okay. So do you think people see you as, as less capable as a woman? Yeah, I think so, for sure. I've definitely experienced, because when I was a cisgendered man, I was viewed as very dominant person. And now my interactions sometimes are more like, oh, I need to do this for you or make this decision for you or take care of this thing for you. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, it's, it's really interesting. Has it changed how you respond to things as well? Has it changed in any way your your temperament? For sure. Yeah. I think what a lot of people don't understand is like society molds you just as much as you try to express yourself, right? Society forces you into these positions. And when you're somebody is presenting as a woman, people expect them to act a certain way. And then you, you start to mold to that mm. because it's like people expect you often enough to act a certain way. You start to meet those expectations. Definitely. Do you feel like you were doing that also when you were presenting as male? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and that was the, the major struggle. Yeah. <laughs> so it's less performing now. It's more at home with the way that you are in that sense, in how you're quote unquote performing. It's just different. It's interesting. It's a lot of people view transitioning as just this outward thing, your appearance or your secondary sexual characteristics or something like that, like boobs. Wow. Which is, is part of it. But I think there's also so much that people don't see that's like social and cultural. That's just like how men and women are trained to respond in the world. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty wild. Mm. 
If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe or press the follow button to get the new episodes. And take a second to like, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people find it. You could also share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You've done quite a lot of kind of self-editing, not just with your transition. You were on a New York Times documentary called Gut Hack, where you did a DIY feces transplant to kind of achieve like a better gut bacteria. And you found that to be really successful. Yeah. You also used the fluorescent jellyfish DNA and added it to your own DNA. Mm -hmm. So you became the first human jellyfish hybrid, which is something I'm fascinated by. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. I mean, there's this whole thing right now, and I know you've interviewed Agnes and Anthromorph. Yeah, I find it fascinating because it does cross over with transgenderism a lot as well in yeah there's this really interesting movement that's starting to develop which is this like i mean i can't speak for agnes or anthromorph but it seems different from previous trans species movements um like being a furry or things like that where it seems more grounded in um identity yeah almost this realistic identity which is not to say that like furries and these other people don't have a realistic identity i know what you're saying though there's and often i think they sometimes get seen as doing drag and it's not drag yeah it's it's Mm -hmm. not part of a comedic or humorous performance and obviously drag can be very political as well but there's something very earnest and important about what they're doing in that i think they feel this very close relationship to non-human species and to almost being non-human as well yeah it's really interesting i've been doing you know some work with agnes and yeah it's really interesting it's really cool i think because i think it's like part of the evolution of everything becoming trans species Yeah. And it's just like to come at it from such a, how do I say, I feel like pure in such a pure way. I think it's really, really, really interesting. Um, Yeah. Do you feel, do you feel that in any way? Do you feel a sort of identity of being (laughs) non-human? I don't see my identity as that necessarily. If anything, it would be more transhuman and not trans species. Mm Mm-hmm. But I feel like I understand it because I've done so much work. Like gene editing is essentially trans species, right? It's like, where do you stop being human? When you add your first gene or change your first gene in your body? Or is there a certain amount of genes you have to change or something like that? You know, and I don't think there's a clear boundary, you know, because a single gene could do a lot and a lot of genes could do a little. So I think it's the intent and stuff that goes behind it. And I've had a lot of experience with that, Mm. with um, changing genes myself and organisms. And um, I've thought a lot about the idea of, you know, trans species and what that means. And what is the work that you're doing with Agnes? You know, it's really cool. She's got this really awesome art show that she's doing in Milan right now. And we worked on an artistic project where I um, purified her DNA from her blood and we turned it into a pill as kind of a representation and performance art of like a trans species, um, you know, modification of the human, right? So So when you say you purified her DNA, what does that mean? 
our cells have DNA in them, and I took the DNA from her cells and removed everything else. Okay, I see. I've seen some shots of her as a sort of underwater creature in Milan in this recent exhibition. Yeah. So she takes the pill for that. Is it a sort of daily pill? Um, we made um, insert for it, kind of like a drug to give to people that other people could take. Um, obviously, it's, it's, it's meant as um, performance art and people shouldn't take it, though I don't think it would have any effect. You know, it's not obviously going to turn people into some trans species organism. Well, maybe a teeny bit. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's the idea, the intent, you know. It's really interesting because it's really starting to blur the lines between actual scientific and biological lab work and this actual idea of trans species, which I think is really cool. It's not not just total performance art. I was just yeah. thinking the same thing. This is how most people are going to learn about these things. They may never ever have heard of this sort of stuff before. So even if it's a complete placebo, it's making people think about, you know, where the line is for them of when somebody becomes transhuman and all of these kind of the complexity of the whole scientific stuff, but also the ethical stuff that comes with it. These kind of conversations are really like juicy and interesting because they're so complicated and they're not clear cut. You know, it's not clear cut ethically. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if I really believe in like ethics, you know? <laughs> I think we each have our own ethics and like we need to do what we feel is, I don't even know the word, right? Because like a lot of times the stuff I do, it's driven by self-expression and curiosity and things like that. And not to say that, you know, I hurt things or kill people or anything like that. But a lot of times ethics are disregarded in exchange for beauty, I guess. Yeah, I think that that's really true. And that's going back to where the line is. Majority of society seems fine with certain cosmetic or medical procedures and then completely not with others. And again, there's a sort of hypocrisy and maybe it's connected mm -hmm. to like an embedded religious thing within society where we see the body as pure and it shouldn't be like tainted with or tampered with through uses of technology because that's seen as somehow dangerous and futuristic. And, you know, we have all these films that are about the fear of technology, the danger of technology. And I think that there's this kind of... Oh, yeah this heightened like hysteria almost i know that's not a good word to use but this sort of on mass hysteria and the conversations at the moment about ai you know how is technology going to impact the world but how is it going to impact our bodies directly have you seen this crimes of the future no what's that cronenberg the movie by um you really should see it crimes um, of the future <laughs> yeah um probably one of the most to me and um it's hard to relate it but i was gonna say that um yeah it's one of the mo most moving things i've seen or experienced in the past few years and it all centers around this stuff mm, okay i'll watch it the regulations and the idea of putting limitations on things is not something that you're involved in because your your mission is the opposite. Your mission is to get science and potentially equipment and gene editing tools and knowledge out to people. But obviously there's this huge backlash from scientists and the government and people trying to shut you down. You were removed from YouTube for a while. Like there's this huge backlash and I get confused about in doing my research about you and about gene editing. I was getting confused about the extent of the power involved in it because there are times when you sort of like play it down and there are times when you really play it up. And I understand that it depends on the actual gene and the process and what's happening. Like it could be that you're modifying a plant in your kitchen 
But obviously the extreme power of gene editing is something much larger than that. But there are times when you say, oh, I don't know what the big deal is. And then there are other times when you really acknowledge that it is a really powerful, um, it's a revolution, like you say. And so I kind of wanted to understand that a bit more. I don't know. I think people view it as this different technology and I view it like other technologies, you know? I guess I see uh, how much it will change things. And I guess a lot of other people see that change being negative, um, whereas I don't, or I don't see that change being so viral. Right. I don't see like all of a sudden somebody does some gene edit and tomorrow every plant is dead or something. Because um, that wouldn't be possible, would it? It'd be very difficult. I mean, I'm not saying it's, you know, there's levels and who knows. But, you know, I think a lot of the things we see are going to be like any other technology, you know, like a TV. Sure, has TV been the best thing for humankind? Probably not. But is it the worst thing? No, not either. <laughs> but it's been a very interesting, useful thing that's impacted us all in such a huge mm. way. And obviously, gene editing, I think, will be way more impactful than tv but it's just like a tv has no ability to like destroy humanity so to speak and i don't think somebody gene editing dogs or plants or even humans really has any chance to destroy humanity no matter how powerful this technology is yeah i think that's exactly how it's with any new tool or any new idea if you want to be a prick about it you know if you if you're a malicious person and you you want to do something evil yeah. there are those people in the world and they will probably do that you know that's whether they have the access to gene editing equipment or not those people will exist and sadly will do awful atrocious things and they'll also be on the flip side the most amazing consequences of things you know tv as your example is like again a source of education and accessibility for everybody and ways of learning about the world yeah. you know the positives that can happen from gene editing in terms of curing sick people, making people who are born with these genetic faults, like helping them to live a life that is full and enriching. Like, how can that ever be a bad yeah. thing? You know, I just feel like there's always good and evil in anything. And people with new technologies are very quick to focus on the, the potential evil. You know, what would it be yeah. like if the, if we used it for the military or what would it be like if cage fighters started injecting themselves to get like become the incredible Hulk and <laughs> things yeah. like that? I mean, would that be possible? As an example, could a cage fighting community, if they wanted to, make themselves into insanely muscular, potentially violent people? Oh, sure. But I mean, they already do that with steroids, don't they? True, true. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> yeah, they're already doing it. I think the thing is, is... Human beings are really afraid of the unknown or the different. And it's just like, why are we so scared of these things? And people will say crazy stuff, you know, Nazis and all this stuff. And it's just like, whoa, slow down. Nazis. You know, like, I think that those are completely different and separate things. And, you know, like, goddamn, Nazis have ruined everything. <laughs> Is that because it's connected to the idea of eugenics and bettering the body? Yeah, it's just like genetics in general. And it's just like, what does this have to do with Nazis? It's not. People changing their genetics is just like, our genetics are changed all the time naturally. You know, every human being has different genetics. Like, this isn't Nazis. There's no Nazis. 
Yeah, well, I guess it's again, it's like it, if something's placed in the wrong hands of someone, but they don't have the power to be a dictator just because they have access to gene editing equipment. No, I mean, especially if it's accessible, you mm. know, if everybody's on a level playing field, then it, it makes it a lot harder for people to control a populace using this technology. Yeah. With your self-editing, you talked about that. Sorry, I talked about you becoming a human jellyfish hybrid. Yeah. Did that, what was the re reaction to that when you injected the jellyfish DNA? How did your body respond to it? Oh, well, so at the time, I was really trying to understand the basic principles and ideas of human genetic modification, because at that time, there wasn't really an understanding of this outside some very limited circles in medicine and academia. And so it was really hard to find any sort of information on processes, methods, and understanding how all this stuff worked. So I embarked on this journey to change the DNA in some of my skin cells and, you know, write a bunch of scientific papers and, you know, inject or do different things to my skin and test the results and see what happened. The jellyfish gene is just a really easy gene because it's easy to test for because it's not human, obviously. So we don't, it's not located anywhere else in our body. Or if it is, you know, there's probably <laughs> something really weird going on with you. So did it make you glow? <laughs> it didn't actually make me glow. I think in order to make me glow, I mean, it would have been cool if it made me glow. Don't get me wrong. But my intent was just to see if I could get this gene inside my cells and if that gene could work functionally. To get myself to glow, it would require probably development of more complex processes and application of larger amounts of DNA and all this other stuff. So my goal is just really to understand this process because, you know, if you had a question like, well, how do I get this DNA into my skin? You know, at that time when I did it, I think it was like in 2016 or 2017, you know, there's probably like 10 people in the world who could answer that question, you know? And uh, if I inject myself with the gene therapy, what's going to happen? You know, there are very few people in the world who really had the understanding to answer questions like that. And since then, the number has just grown a lot. A lot of people started experimenting with these technologies, started trying to get a better idea of how it all works. And it's really opened up a lot of knowledge accessibility. Mm. I mean, you kind of became a sort of icon of biohackers and your celebrity status kind of came when you, you went viral after injecting yourself at a a biohacking conference or a gene conference. Yeah. And that kickstarted a lot of interest around CRISPR and gene editing. And you talk about how, you know, what you injected yourself with, which was to do with muscle development, wouldn't have worked because it was such a small amount. But you were trying to make a point of like, look, it's this easy. Is that right? Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people, I'm not trying to do science, but I'm not not trying to do science. I view myself more as like an activist, performance artist, things like that. And I think a lot of people don't know how to take that because, um, and I've done a lot of things that haven't worked, a lot of experiments, you know, that haven't worked scientifically, but the premise and the idea was what was important to me. Mm. And I think it was really similar. It was like, 
the point I was trying to get across was not to grow bigger muscles, though a lot of people took it that way. That wasn't like, if I wanted to get bigger muscles, I'd go to the gym or something, <laughs> you know, like a normal person. Or take steroids like the big cage fighters. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and I think a lot of the things I do are for that reason is like, it, it's not just to like do the experiment and collect data um, and it to be successful or unsuccessful. I think the success of the experiment isn't as important as showing people how accessible this stuff is, right? It's possible that somebody could do this or try this and trying to wake people up to this idea that, you know, this technology isn't as difficult to work with as people think. Mm. Well, I feel like you definitely got that across, which is good. <laughs> if that was your aim, it worked. The first sort of stage of your transitioning was, I read a newsletter, which you, or is it part of your blog, which is Amateur Gods. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You posted it in June 2020. And it was a really moving piece of writing, I thought, because there was this sort of build up to the point, like it was actually you... And it's sad and it's very sad, I would say, that people feel like they have to come out and that's something that you address. And I do think that that's something we shouldn't put on people, that they shouldn't owe us that. Well, before that, just to cut you, well, what I was hoping up to that point was just like, I'm not going to ever come out. Like, I'm just going to like be who I am and then whatever. But then it started to get really weird. Why? How? Well, because, you know, like, I'm, uh, I don't know if I'd call myself a celebrity, but like, I do interviews and documentaries and give talks and, you know, I'm on social media and have a big audience and people start to get become really confused. And even nowadays, people are still confused. They can't tell if I'm actually transgender or if I'm just weird sometimes. <laughs> I guess as well, it's kind of, you know, it's a big thing. Your pronouns, for example. Yeah. I understand from that particular article, your pronouns are they, them. But, you know, I think that that is very particular for some people. So in one breath, it's annoying for people to feel like they have to come out. But at the same time, it does mark like a chapter change in their life and something has happened. Yeah. And if they want to be referred to as a different name or a different pronoun, then they kind of have to stress that point. Oh, for sure. But in a way, wouldn't it be a great thing to just future just have never announced it oh for sure yeah and it links to you being a bit of a performance artist as well in, in that it was it could have almost been like an experiment like how long can i go without people saying anything it was a long time people just kept commenting on how young i look and stuff like that but then people started to know my notice my boobs growing and stuff and started to get really weird <laughs> weird comments on instagram yeah on social media and everywhere because people were just like um <laughs> it seems like something's going on I don't know. But they could have assumed, in a sense, which was also true, that because you're a biohacker, that you might have been using yourself as a guinea pig for certain experiments, for sure. which you kind of were as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure, yeah. So that's the assumption yeah. people probably uh -huh. made, which I can see why. And you did, in this article, you talk about that particular experiment, which is, so you decided that you wanted to experiment to see if you could create boobs. And you were successful. So you used, you injected a small amount of highly concentrated solution straight into your chest. The solution was poly, yeah. polyethylene glycol. Am I saying that right? Uh -huh. And you noticed a feeling immediately that it was growing and you uh -huh. had size C cups for about 24 hours. This is just like, 
absolutely amazing. So were they out of interest? You, do you mind me asking? Were they like round breasts? They were. They looked like breasts. Um. So it kind of like dispersed more evenly. So it wasn't so much as round, which was an interesting thing because it's more of like a liquid polymerish thing. I think it dispersed all the way up, so it just didn't necessarily stay in one place, and it was absorbing water, um, polymer because it was so concentrated that it all of a sudden it just started absorbing a bunch of water, which caused it all to grow and swell and caused my chest to grow and swell. It was really interesting. Well, I mean, that whole world is really interesting cosmetic procedures because I feel like there's so many things that can be done. There's so many inexpensive, there's so many biocompatible things that can be used and done. It's just they're not approved by the FDA and that costs money. And then when it, that costs money, then companies have to charge a lot of money to recoup. And it's just like, but yeah, I experimented with a lot of different things. And I don't think I've ever really talked about this that much, but there's a lot of biocompatible polymers out there that can be used in, you know, many parts of the body that I think would be really helpful for people who um, experience various kinds of, I don't, I don't necessarily, they don't have to be dysphorias, but just like changes that they want to make to their body. Mm. You know, particularly in this case, it was a temporary thing. And I think gender transitioning is so permanent. And I think for some people, you know, some non-binary people feel like they don't want to change their body. Yeah. But there's often, you know, people aren't sure. And it's such a permanent decision. I think being able to try something and see how you felt about it and maybe try yeah. it a few times and see if it see if it makes yeah, you feel good could sure. actually be such a, a great tool for people to use who are who aren't sure oh for sure yeah again though it's so brave you did that because you never know i guess what's going to happen it could have all like moved to your shoulder you could have had to sort of boob on your shoulder <laughs> well i mean i have an idea usually when i go into these things i i have a basic understanding of what's going on and um, I, I don't doubt that you know uh, so I generally don't do anything that would, I think, seriously risk my health or anything. Like, I don't want to die. I don't have a death wish. You know, that's what I thought a lot about because it's hard, especially, I think people don't understand is that like we live in a binary society and it's tough. And once you start looking more feminine, you can't really like straddle that line very well without attracting a lot of attention. Society generally pushes you one way or the other because it's just, like if you want to use a bathroom or you want to do certain things in society you know it's really hard if you're not passing as one or the other um mm. yeah that's a, that's a tough one um and that sucks because it's like something i didn't realize because i was just like i'm just gonna figure it out and like be whatever and do whatever and then you start experimenting with looking more feminine and then you're just like oh fuck it's really hard to look masculine and feminine because society really doesn't accept that mm, and society wants to put everyone into boxes there's a really interesting author called Myra Hurd who writes a lot about the queerness of nature and she uses things like examples of bacteria but loads of different examples that she outlines of how nature, organisms, non-human species are all queer and there isn't a binary in the animal kingdom. It's a human creation that we've made and it's it's about power and control, that's all. Oh, for sure. And it's also just about like this point in history. People view things so like short term, you know, like this is 
is how things are and this is the way they were and this is how they always will be and it's just like no you know like there's going to be a certain point in human history where sexual dimorphism is going to be weird it's like why do i think that because it's like all the tools and things available to us and people wanting to express themselves and the natural course of genetics you know what they call evolution is changes in genes over time genes change over time things change over time and mutations and interactions between certain organisms and certain things that were put together and how they react together those create mutations and that's the success of evolution is about mutation isn't it so in terms of technology and science and the evolving kind of or advancing science and tech do you see that as a kind of new natural mutating part of human history? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I think we're starting human beings, well, started a long time ago to kind of become independent of evolution by natural selection, right? So like through birth and stuff like that, right? Like if you have an illness or disease, we try to treat it and keep you alive. And a lot of times we can and we cure it. And so what happens is there's a buildup of these genes that starts to happen that don't have a positive aspect for natural selection evolution right just something as simple as like you know wearing glasses or eyesight it's like the number of people who wear glasses or contacts or things like that it's immense and it, it's like a thousand years ago you probably would have died out really fast yeah or, or not been mated with or something like that you know, same with people with like spinal muscular atrophy or, you know, whatever. A lot, there's a lot of illnesses and diseases that we can now overcome. But that also means that those genes become part of our population, which means that like evolution by natural selection is kind of dying, but human beings are becoming the new, I don't know, gods. That's why I like the phrase amateur gods, you know? It's like we get to control genetics, but we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that kind of scary? I mean, like you said before, you try not to get or engage too much with your fear, but the pressure or responsibility, because with great power comes great responsibility, right? <laughs> but also it's just like, gods don't get to choose whether they're gods or not. I think it's our responsibility to do good with it or, you know, alleviate human suffering because good is like, what does that mean? But I think alleviate human suffering is a, is a goal. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like, what else can you do? Have fun. Express yourself. Have fun with it. Exactly. There's uh, one of the quotes from the Netflix series. There was a scientist who talked about rewriting the book of life, which I thought was a really powerful and amateur godlike thing to say. And in a sense, it's what you're kind of doing, right? You're with Odin and with your career and what you're focused on is sort of you're contributing to this revolution in gene editing, which is a really powerful place to be working in. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I just hope that in my lifetime, we get to see some pretty wild things. If not, I'm just happy that I was able to express myself and, you know. And contribute to the conversation, I guess. Yeah, sure. I think for me, what drives me, you know, I think what drives most artists is just this deep down insatiable need to express themselves. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to wind up as a scientist, which most artists don't. And science became my medium. And that's very rare to non-existent. And so it's interesting. But yeah, I think that just being able to express myself has been, I think, one of the 
It's life-saving. It's been one of the most profound things that I've been able to experience in my mm. life. And um, yeah. It's really important for people to hear experiences like yours and understand experiences like yours and also understand more about what you're actually doing and the science behind it. Like I say, I came at this with no, I'm not, I am not a scientist, so I'm coming at it from a very... No, it's good. I appreciate it. You know, I'd rather not talk about the science and talk more about um, all the other things because I think the science is like the boring part to me. Um, the humanity and the art is like the interesting part. I think people place too much emphasis on science, but when you think about it, science is just trying to explain all the things that we can understand, mm. not the things we can't. And art is trying to understand all the things we can't understand. And I think that's a lot more interesting to me because it's like, who cares how much an electron weighs? I would rather understand sadness and love, you know? <laughs> the human side of it all, yeah. The feelings and emotions, that's what makes life so rich, isn't it? Exactly. What are you working on in terms of, um, you know, artistically? Like, what can we kind of look out for and what are you working on at the moment? Oh, I'm always working on crazy stuff. What's the craziest thing? You know, like I said, working on with... what's the craziest thing. <laughs> right now, I think I'm focusing a lot on just building up my company and my platform and figuring out ways to get people more involved in science and genetic engineering in general. It's an interesting and difficult problem. I think it's really, really important to me. And in, in art, I just, I wish I had more time for it lately. I have a lot of things I've been working on that I hope to bring to fruition, but it's always just like juggling so many things at once. I hope one day. That you can do more art. Yeah, or finish up some of the stuff I'm working on. <laughs> well, hopefully we all get to see that as well. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you, Joe. I'm really excited to see what's coming. I'm really excited to see more of the artistic stuff as well. But thank you again for your time. You've been really generous and I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bodies in the Post with Dr. Joe Zayner. If you enjoyed listening, please follow the show for more episodes. 